my name is Ruth and I'll be doing the Bible reading which is in your handout. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we will tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with, that, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. For people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. It sucks, it is sad, it is lonely, it is heartbreaking, it is life-changing, it is painful, it is tragic, it is pathetic, it is devastating, it is depressing, it is just so damn bad. You feel as if your life will never go on. It rips you up and tears you down, you feel empty, you feel lost. It leaves a huge gaping hole in your heart that will never, ever heal. It messes with your mind. You'll miss her, probably more than you'll miss anybody in this entire world. It's a roller coaster of emotions. One minute you'll be at peace with her death. The next you'll feel the heart-wrenching feeling that she is never coming back. Hearing her name will pull at you. It will leave you feeling unsettled especially when you know that she is missing milestones in your life. It is dark, it is upsetting, it is miserable. There's regret, there's guilt, and there is an extreme feeling of loss that could never, ever, ever be replaced. Losing a loved one, as this blogger recounts the death of her mother, 
is perhaps the most, exper- the most harrowing experience that you or I will ever go through. Some of you probably have already gone through it. Uh, all of us will at some point in the future go through it. And we'll cast about, we'll be looking for answers, we'll feel utterly and completely adrift, we'll make accusations. And from that point on in our lives, we will carry something with us that will never leave us. An absence. And the years will go on and people will forget, but you won't forget. People will start smiling again. You will as well, but not in the same way. Your pain will dull. You'll learn to manage. But that absence, that separation, that rending of relationship, well, it remains. Peter Bolt, who's a theologian, also the author of a book called Living with the Underworld, says this. This is his reflection on a a, a funeral that he went to. If your philosophy of life has nothing to say at the graveside, then it has nothing to say. Here is our last and greatest enemy. The grave casts a shadow over our life and questions its whole existence. This is the problem that has invaded our world. And if I could just land his point, this is the problem that you will need an answer to. Uh, Now, in our society, uh, particularly in Australia, we have tried to domesticate death. Old people, people who die, are put in nursing homes away from the public eye. We don't know where they are. We don't see them. We don't visit them. Our advertising is flooded with young and sexy and attractive people. And you never see the old people unless it's like, you know, death insurance, life insurance. You should get it because you're 65 and you're heading in that direction. Our news covers up the issue of death, particularly on a global stage. Uh, Donald Trump gets infected with coronavirus and he's saluting the flag six hours later and he's never felt healthier. No no matter what happens, everywhere we look in this sanitised West, we have tried to cover up the reality of death. But it is not something that we can ever escape because at one point in our life, at some point in our life, we will need to confront it. Because as life goes on and your loved ones die... You will find yourself summoned again and again to the graveside that Peter Bolt talks about here to confront your last and greatest enemy. And death will taunt you with another victim and with another absence, and you will grieve. And the issue that today's passage addresses is how you will grieve. Uh, And in the mind of the Apostle Paul, who writes the letter to the Thessalonians, the the book that we're studying, uh, you you grieve really in one of two ways. You either grieve with hope or you grieve without hope. Uh, Because according to the Apostle Paul, the Christians and how they mourn their dead is distinct and different from the way that the rest of the world mourns their dead. And the difference lies in the fact that Christians have an answer to death in the way that the rest of the world doesn't. A reason, a real reason to believe that when we are separated from our loved ones by death, for those who are in Christ, Christ will one day reunite us with them. And that changes the way that we approach our grief. We will grieve. There's no escaping that. But it changes the way that we die together as a community. And it changes the way, and we'll see this a little bit later on as we get to chapter 5, it changes the way that we live together as a community. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at this passage in two parts. You'll see them in your outline. Uh, The first part is the back end of chapter 4. Paul introduces the topic in verse 13 and he says this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, 
so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, apparently one of the outstanding questions the Thessalonians have at this late stage in the game um, is what happens to those who've fallen asleep? Now, that's a common euphemism. Uh, Back in the ancient world, they would use that for people who have died. We even use it today. Uh, And generally speaking in the ancient world, when somebody entered the sleep of death, they were considered to be entering a sleep that they never woke from. And so the Thessalonians, who know about the resurrection of Jesus, who've been told about the resurrection of Jesus, have an open question about the Christian dead. What happens to them? Now, it's a little unclear as we read through the passage what precisely the Thessalonians were thinking and what they thought would happen. We'll see it a bit more clearly when we get to verse 15. But the one thing that Paul wants to ensure them above all else is that they will not grieve like the rest of mankind who do not have hope. Because for the rest of mankind, death is the end. Now, I was on uh, a walk one time. Um, I might have even been in the car. We'll see what happens. But I saw this at the front of a shop called Herbal Healing. I just thought it was really interesting. There's an inspirational quote on, on the window. It says, there is a cure for every sickness except death. Now, I looked at that and I thought, hang on a minute. I think they think this is supposed to be inspirational, but it's just kind of sad isn't it? That's an admission of powerlessness. You can fix your aches, we can fix your pains, we can even fix your cancer apparently, but when it comes to your death, well, we have no hope for you. And that is the state of humanity, according to Paul. And this reality for us really drives us into a number of really unhelpful, hopeless responses. And the first is to deny the problem of death. Uh, to claim that death is natural, it's a normal reality, it's not meant to be escaped. Now, usually this comes out of an atheistic naturalism. Uh, These are the people that say that the material world is all that there is. Life has no meaning or purpose, it was just an accident. So when people die, well, that's just how things are going to happen, so let's make the best of a sad situation. And so what they do is they, they take their grief and they try to kind of twist it and make it into this sort of idea of celebration and, and thankfulness. Uh, And if you've been to uh, a a funeral in the last couple of decades, you would have seen this at at non-Christian funerals. Yes, there's tears, but but the grief of separation is now papered over by this sort of faux happiness. It's all about celebrating. You wear colourful clothes rather than mourning clothes. Uh, You you think about how they lived a good life, uh, about all the good times that they had. uh, But you don't linger on the fact that the person who you're about to bury or about to cremate has just been violently torn from your lives. Now, don't get me wrong, we are meant to remember and honour the dead and reflect on their life. But it's also important that we remember that they are dead. And that's a harrowing reality. Because I think, you and I, we know deep down that death is not natural. Because if it was natural, we would not respond to it the way that we do. I don't know whether you studied this in your wife's exams, but Dylan Thomas, that famous poem, uh, Don't Go Gently Into That Good Night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. There's just something intuitive in us that just says death is something to be avoided, not to be experienced. And it's not because, you know, my potential is suddenly ended. When our loved ones die, we are moved to anger. We are moved to self-destructive habits. We're, We're moved to the inability to function. Uh, put it this way, you never go up to somebody at a funeral uh, and say, look, I'm really sorry for your loss, but this is just the misguided attachment that you have to a collection of atoms that, that accidentally came about in a world that has no meaning. 
Nobody says that. And it's not just because it's insensitive. It's because it defies what we know from experience. The person who has just died and who has been torn from my life, that should never have happened. And I cannot reverse the problem. So we try to deny it. Other people, uh, they try to detach. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, not just famous for the movie, from the movie Gladiator, uh, he was a Roman emperor. He was also a famous Greek Stoic philosopher. And he was famous for saying this. Here's a parenting tip for you. Every time you put your son to bed at night, say to yourself, he could be dead in the morning. That was his life philosophy. In other words, the way that you grieve death is to detach yourself from anything that you love and live as though they're already dead. If you can't deny the problem, well, then you can at least manage it and try and control how much it affects us. But again, it's a hopeless response to death. And really, once you drill down to the bottom, you end up with the third and I think the most common response, the most common hopeless response, and that is that you despair. I watched the first episode of Ricky Gervais' Afterlife on Netflix recently. Don't watch it. It is not a wholesome show. Um, I was lied to when it was recommended. But the whole premise of the show is the despair of a man who's lost his wife and now has nothing to live for. And so he goes through life saying and doing the most dysfunctional and dangerous things because he is powerless to restore life and relationship. And what Paul says here in verse 13 is that regardless of how you respond to death, uh, when you peel back the veneer of denial or detachment or distraction or whatever it is, if you are not in Christ, then the reality is the same. You will face death and you will grieve and you will have no hope. And Paul turns to the Thessalonians and he says, that is not you. I want you to know that you have hope. That you don't need to grieve like the rest of mankind when confronted with death because you have something that they don't. And he tells us what it is in verse 14. He says, for, and here's his reason, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Uh, And so there's the, the statement, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then we have the implication. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Now, just roll with me on this one. If I told you that your brother and, or sister or, or sibling or mother or father, whatever it is, were, had just been selected by NASA to head on an expedition to the moon. Now, I told you, just roll with me. It's, it's 2020. Anything can happen, right? What is the thing that would give you assurance that when we launch them into the cold dead of space, they would come back? Well, it's because we've done it before, right? Conspiracy theorists accepted. It's because back in 1969, we put three guys in a rocket and we launched them into oblivion and they came back. And it's that same logic that Paul gives to the Thessalonians that forms the Christian hope. How do we know that those who have entered the sleep of death can and will be restored to us? Well, it's because we know that Jesus died and rose again. It's because back in AD 30, at a specific point in history, Jesus was crucified on a cross and he was launched into the oblivion of death But then three days later, he returned. And what God promises us is that at Jesus' return, he will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, you do not need to grieve like the rest because you have Jesus who is your hope. 
you have a reason to know, not just suspect, but know that in your grief, you will one day see your Christian brothers and sisters again. The rest of mankind, they don't have that hope. What they have is wishful thinking. They might have the concept of a, or a belief in the afterlife that you know, their deceased is looking down on them, that they're at peace now, that one day they'll be with them in heaven or, or what have you. But, but really that belief is baseless. Uh, they can't point to anything to convince you of that fact other than the power of their own belief. And I've, I've, you've heard that, right? Like, I like to believe that. Uh, but that is a flimsy thing to take to the grave, isn't it? We as Christians have something much stronger. We have a guarantee that at the last day of Jesus' coming, he will bring dead believers back with him and he will raise them to life. Now, as we keep reading through the passage, we see in verse 15 something really interesting. Um, We see a kind of a phrase that pops up. Uh, It says, they will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's a few kind of quirks in this passage. Back in verse 14, he says he will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep. Now, I'm I'm expecting the word raise, right? When Jesus turns turns up, he will raise the dead, but he's going to bring them. So what does that mean? And then the Thessalonians are kind of saying, hang on, um, will they precede us? Will we precede them? And I think that gives us a bit of an insight into what is really concerning the Thessalonians at this point. I don't think it's them thinking that, oh, okay, if you die... Uh, before Jesus comes back, then that's, that's game over. Like the, the faith was pointless or useless. Now, it, what it seems to be is, is a fairness issue. If people die before Jesus comes back, um, have they missed out? Or, or will they be disadvantaged in some sort of way? Like will they be last in the line for Christ's blessings or something? Or when he establishes his kingdom on earth, will they kind of be the last ones to kind of get the handout? Uh, and, and the honest answer is we actually don't know specifically what the Thessalonians were really struggling with. Uh, But what we do know with crystal clarity is Paul's response to their concerns. And he says to them that no one will miss out on anything. There will be complete equality, whether you have died in the Lord or whether you remain alive in the Lord when he comes. um, We will all be equally reunited together with the Lord Jesus. And once that reunion happens, we will never, ever be separated again. And so he kind of gives us the mechanics of this to assure the Thessalonians and us to to know what to expect, to make sure that things aren't going to kind of get left out. He says from verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. These are all signs of the last day when Jesus comes. You can read about them in places like Matthew 24. Uh, And we're told that the dead in Christ will rise first. So Christians, we're kind of on, on, on the land, we're still alive. Jesus turns up somewhere from above and the dead in Christ will rise to life. And then verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So for some strange, unexplainable reason, Christians will learn how to fly. Now, I don't know whether that'll be um, a particular superpower we're given. It probably won't be. But the idea is that as Jesus comes down from heaven, uh, we will rise to meet him And the trajectory really is that we will continue down onto earth as Jesus makes his kingdom on earth. And the emphasis that Paul makes as that process happens when Jesus returns to fix the world and remove sin and remove death is that all of us, whether we've died or lived, will raise and be meeting him in the air and we will always be forever with the Lord, which is the Christian hope. And what that means is that there is no such thing as a farewell in Christ. Now, we will see and be with each other again. And and just take a moment to to reflect on that, right? Um, Isn't that a wonderful prospect? That in the Lord Jesus, 
There is no such thing as a goodbye. Just to see you later. That in the midst of our grief, and we will grieve, we will know that our parting is only temporary. Because at the return of Jesus, he will bring with those who have fallen asleep in him to be with us. I'll tell you, that changes your entire outlook on death. It is an enemy, it is rude, it is evil, but it will not have the last laugh. Now, before we move on to chapter 5 and think about what this looks like living rather than dying, I do want to point out something that you might have already picked up on. This hope is contingent. And what I mean by that is it's not just a blanket. It applies to everybody at every time. Uh, We would have seen there in verse 14 um, that it is for those who have fallen asleep in him. Uh, And what that tells us is that it is only those who have died as Christians that will be raised with Christ and reunited together. Uh, And so it's not a blanket hope in an absolute sense. And I want to kind of empathise at that point. Um, You will and I do have relatives that have passed away and have not fallen asleep in Christ. And that same hope that, the, that Paul is offering the Thessalonians here is not available uh, in every single case. Uh, I just want to say that's rough. Um, praise God that we have a God who cares, who asks us to cast all our anxieties on him. That's 1 Peter 5. Uh, but there's just something that's really rough there. Uh, Not everybody will be reunited with everybody that they love, only those who are in Jesus. And what I want to say from this reality is I think that drives us to evangelism, Um, especially at the deathbeds of our relatives who do not know Jesus. Now, I know that's quite a scary uh, idea. Uh, It kind of feels really insensitive, right? Like, uh, here's my grandmother, she's there, she's dying, uh, and you want to sit down and tell them that their whole life has been a sinful rejection of God and that they need to repent to receive salvation. Like, that's rough, right? But what I want us to encourage, uh, I want to encourage us to think about as we think about this, is that we may have the, the moment, the opportunity, the, the fortunate um, case where we can actually share with them the one message, the one person who will rescue them from death to life permanently, even as they face physical death. Um, some might not go for it. Uh, some might not get it. Uh, But as Christians, we are the only ones who can stand in the face of death and offer hope. Uh, It's something that motivates us, not just at the deathbeds of friends and family, but to the people that we know and live with among today. Uh, We want to share with them the wonder and the joy of being with the Lord Jesus. Uh, So something to chew on and think about, the Christian hope and where it drives us. That's death. Let's have a think about life. When we get to chapter 5, we see that Paul has actually been talking about the same centre figure uh, the whole time. In chapter 4, he deals with the issue of how we grieve for those who are asleep. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, he turns his attention to how we are to live when we are awake. And just like in chapter 4, chapter 5 centres around this, this, this event called the Day of the Lord. And Paul's big point in this section is that we do not know when the day of the Lord is coming. We know that it is, but we have no idea when. And so his warning to us is don't get sloppy. Stay alert, keep watch, wait for the day. Uh, Because, and this is chapter 5, verse 2, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You won't see it coming. You see, thieves don't ride ahead and kind of say, okay, your house, um, this Tuesday, I'm coming. 
Right? They don't do that. They come at night. They come when you're sleeping, when you don't expect it. And what Paul is saying here is be ready. Because if you aren't, you're going to lose more than just your jewellery or your flat screen TV. Because what's at stake here is your life. Because on that day when Jesus returns, he's not just coming to give life to those that are his. He's coming to judge those who aren't his. And you see that there in verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. A little bit later, in verses 6 to 7, Paul describes these people as asleep and drunk. Not asleep in the sense of that they are dead, like we saw in chapter 4, but but asleep and drunk in the sense of insensible. They're just kind of out of it. They they think the world is normal and that it will just continue as it has for the last 2,000 years since Christ came. You know, the sun rises, the sun sets, life just continues on, peace safety, all the while not realising that God has, in reality, determined a particular point in history where he will return suddenly and catastrophically and it will come to an end, the whole of history, the whole of life, and he'll roll credits without so much as a denouement or the end of a story. And Paul draws attention to these drunk and sleeping people so that he can say to the Thessalonians in verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You know the reality, he says. You know what time of day it is. And he continues in verse 5, and he says, You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Now, as most of you know, um, Bethany and I are expecting our first child. And in a couple of weeks, yeah, don't worry, the pregnancy or sermon illustrations, that they're going to disappear, I promise you. Okay, so this is the last one I'll use this semester, all right? Um, and, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to hit the drop zone, right? That baby can come at any time. Now, it's not quite the day of the Lord, but it is going to come upon us like the labour pains of a pregnant woman. Uh, and one of the ways that we are preparing for that reality and that we are going to stay awake and sober um, is we have packed a bag for the hospital. So regardless of when it comes, we can just grab the bag and run and get to the hospital. We are living for the day. We just don't know where it is. But can I let you in on a little secret? When I say we packed a bag, I actually mean Bethany. I haven't packed my stuff yet. Now, not that I have to pack as much. And so I believe that that day is coming. But am I ready? Well, no. How do we as Christians get ready for the day of the Lord? What does it look like to pack our bags? Well, in verse 8, Paul kind of tells us what it looks like. He tells us to armour ourselves. And I think the reason he uses this sort of imagery, you know, the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation, um, is because they are a means of protection when in verse 9, God comes to pour out his wrath on those who haven't repented. And he says it here, he says, For... Verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this ties into what Paul has been saying consistently through the whole of 1 Thessalonians so far. Look at some of the things that he says. Now, he says that you turn, Thessalonians, this is in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Then in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul encourages and comforts and urges them to live worthy lives of God uh, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. 
Chapter 3, verse 13, he says to them, May God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. And then finally, in chapter 5, verse 23, he says something similar. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And when you take all of these things together, as those who are to belong to the day, we are, who are destined to be rescued from the wrath to come when Jesus comes, uh, in light of that hope of that rescue, we are to live lives of faith and love such that we will be found blameless at his coming. And so we don't just believe that the day is coming, but then leave our bags unpacked. What we do is, as Christians, we live each day consciously cultivating blameless and holy conduct. Because that is how we present ourselves when Christ suddenly returns. Those things won't save us. Jesus saves us. That's what verse 10 is about. It says he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. But living in this way is entirely consistent with the salvation that he has given us and the way that we remain sober and not insensible to the day of the Lord. It's how we stay awake. And so as we draw all this together, both the dying and then the living, uh, and we close this talk and we bring the the semester to a finish, I, I want you to see where Paul takes all of this information about the day of the Lord. Where does he end up? The day of the Lord as our hope when we grieve for those who fall asleep. The day of the Lord as the point that we orient our lives around as we await for his salvation. This is where he lands. Chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And so the logical conclusion of this reality, the day of the Lord that kind of sits on the horizon but will suddenly come at us when we are least expecting it, well, the logical conclusion is that we should remind and encourage one another of this fact. And I think this plays out in in two situations as Paul kind of references in the passage. Uh, The first is we encourage each other with these words and this reality in the face of death. Uh, Now, I did a lot of Googling about what people say at funerals. Uh, There's a lot of do's and don'ts. Uh, And all of them, without exception actually, are ultimately aimed at managing and empathising with grief. But not a single one of them offered any sort of tangible hope. Not so for the Christian. When we face death, we speak up. Not insensitively, we, we don't ignore grief, we grieve too. But as we speak with those who grieve, with our Christian brothers and sisters, we not only say, yeah, we'll miss her, we are actually diminished by her absence, we'll grieve with you, we're going to miss her. Uh, We're also able to say, but praise God for Jesus, who died for us, who rose again, who gives us the certain hope that we will see her again one day. So hold tight, weather the storm, it's going to suck, it's going to hurt, it will never entirely disappear But keep pushing because the day of the Lord is coming. And when it does, we will all be reunited together with the Lord forever. I just want to say, uh, as young guys, people who probably haven't experienced many funerals, don't be afraid to speak up to your brothers and sisters when you find yourself in that space. There'll be a time. You can use your wisdom and discernment as to when. But we have hope. It's the Christian birthright. And what we need to do for each other is that in times of overwhelming emotion, like the death of a loved one, we need to speak it to one another, to remind one another and help each other see it. 
So that's the first situation. The second situation uh, is a bit broader. It's, it's chapters 5, 1 to 11. It's all of life, right? It's until Jesus returns. And I think this is actually the challenge for us. Because when was the last time that you mentioned Jesus' return in a conversation to encourage a brother or sister in their walk with the Lord? I struggle to think of when I did it. I think the reality is that we are more often nodding off rather than staying awake and being switched on. Uh, The immediate demands and anxieties of the present, they kind of draw our attention away from the thing that should engage our attention, the thing that we should be looking forward to, which is the return of our saviour, the one who will completely right the wrongs of the world, restore the dead to us, remove our sin, take away the curse of this creation and usher us into eternal bliss. Instead, we're worried about exams, we're worried about our careers, we're worried about our relationships. And I think one of the great gifts that God gives his people is his people. Because together we can help each other stay awake as that long night stretches on and the dawn seems less and less likely. I mean, Jesus has been waiting for 2,000 years. 2 Peter 3 tells us there's a reason for that. He wants more and more people to come to know the Lord Jesus. It's an opportunity to evangelise. But it is very tempting for us to think, well, if he hasn't come in 2,000 years, he's probably not going to come in another 20. Certainly not going to come in my lifetime. And yet what this passage tells us to do is encourage one another with the fact that, oh, he's coming back. And he's coming back today. And so we are to live as though we are. And so my final encouragement at the end of semester is this. As you head out into exams and your ridiculous four months of holidays, encourage one another with these words. Work out how you're going to share this with your friends at church, with your friends at the CU, with your family, and remind one another what it is that you're living for. Because it's not your degree, it's not your summer job, it's not your holiday. It's the hope of the Lord's return. How about I pray for us? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the Lord Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come, uh, who teaches us what it is to live uh, in light of his coming return and reign and rule. I pray that you will bless us with spiritual eyes to see the reality that we live in, that we won't be sleeping or drunk, but instead we will be awake and sober, mindful of his return and letting it shape the way that we confront life and the way that we confront death. Encourage our hearts and help us to encourage one another and help us to live as those in the day, knowing that one day that sun will dawn and we will live in day forever. Amen. My understanding is that's us done. Is that right, Andrew? We've got a couple of minutes, uh, which means we've got a couple of minutes for questions if you have them. Um, I know it's been pretty heavy uh, and there's a lot of kind of weird sort of things that kind of popped up, particularly in Chapter 4. Uh, So if you've got any questions, feel free to ask them now. Andrew, hit us up. Uh, How do you think we should respond to the death of a loved one who was not in Christ? Yeah, and I think that's the tough one, isn't it? Um, Because we we don't have that same prospect of reunion with them. Um, I think you have to grieve... And you have to grieve the fact that they did not know Jesus uh, and confront the reality that outside of Jesus there is no rescue from wrath against sin. Uh, 
that's really hard for me to say because I know that a number of you will have grandparents, probably particularly, but probably parents as well in a room this big um, who are no longer with us and who didn't know the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that's just devastating. And that can send you into all sorts of emotional turmoil. Um, what I can say is that um, you cannot claim the hope that Paul offers to Christians here for those who are not in Christ. Um, and there is a sense in which you need to then throw yourself on the mercy of God, not to pray for them that he will suddenly change his mind. He's very clear in the scriptures that death is the point of no return of decision. But to throw yourself on God in prayer and lament and wrestle with why this is not wrong and that God is not evil. Because that's the wrong way to respond to it. To conclude that, conclude that somehow, because this has happened, that, that God is evil, that he hasn't been thoughtful, and therefore I'm, he's not worthy of serving. Um, it is something that you need to wrestle with and, and work out in, pre, in the presence of the Lord in prayer uh, and in the presence of your brothers and sisters as they try to make sense of what is actually a deep tragedy. Uh, death is evil. Uh, God tells us that all of us deserve it, even the Christians. We've had mercy because we've accepted the Lord Jesus. But there is never a point where it's like, yep, well, they deserve death, so huh? It is a tragedy. Uh, the problem is we just don't have the prospect of reunion. So hopefully that's of some help. Katie? Mm. Yeah, well, the first, the first implication is that it's, you want it more. Um, like, I think one of the biggest misunderstandings that Christians have about, you know, life beyond death is that it's just we go to heaven. We're some sort of kind of... Um, uh, immaterial spiritual things sitting in clouds. But what's significant, I didn't mention this in the thing, the word that the, 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 the passage uses for we go to meet the Lord is actually a word for a delegation that goes out to meet somebody who's visiting. So we kind of leave the front door and we say, hey, welcome to my house, and we come back in. Right? Now, it's implied, it's not particularly um, definitely there in the passage, but when we kind of start to build up the theological picture of Christ's return, the picture that we see is Jesus comes to claim the earth and renew the earth uh, in perfection, uh, and we as resurrected beings, we not just have these same useless bodies that sprain our ankles and we get hungry and all that sort of stuff, uh, but we will be given resurrection bodies appropriate for the perfect new heavens and new earth. Uh, and so if you go to other places um, like 1 Corinthians 15, you kind of start to add a bit of the picture. The same trumpet is mentioned, um, but one of the things that Paul adds um, is that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, and he doesn't mention that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, and, uh, but what we are kind of led to believe is that at a certain point in the process, those who are still alive, because those who have been raised from the dead are raised, resurrected, with the resurrection body, those who are still alive will be transformed in some sort of way to be like Jesus. Uh, and the idea of meeting him in the air really is just the meeting place before we come down and we inhabit and, and, and take it on. So that's to kind of describe what's sort of happening. The implications, I think, are to appreciate our material existence. Um, 
Food is good. Um, there was a petting zoo at E-Zone yesterday. I got to hold a ferret. It was awesome, right? Uh, and, and those little joys that we have in this world uh, will only be magnified in the next as we inhabit a physical reality, but one that is no longer tainted by animals that can bite you. Um, yeah. That's us for time. Um, I don't want to hold you any longer than the, um, the university expects us to hold you, but if you've got any other questions, come down and talk to me. Um, I really do hope that God blesses you over this uh, break and that you stay firm in the Lord Jesus uh, and trusting in him. Please do it.